Hey, Carrie Brown. Hello. Hey, you know, there's only a couple of days left to get your tickets to Keto Fest reserved through our Kickstarter system. Keto Fest is going to be so awesome this year. You don't want to miss it. So get up there. Yeah. So get up there, ketofest.com, and get your tickets. You know that the party's going to be way better if you're there. Yes. But you got to have a ticket if you want to join us. So go do that. Yeah, do that now. Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut. I went keto in 2016 to reverse diabetes and lose weight. It's my mission to spread the science of keto and to show the world how cooking is necessary for keto success. Oh, and ribeye. <laughs> ribeye! And I'm Carrie Brown, and I also live in Connecticut, just a different part to Carl. I'm a trained pastry chef who went keto to control and eventually eliminate symptoms from bipolar 2 disorder and depression. I take no medications, I have no symptoms, and it's my mission to show the world that keto food is not only delicious, but it can be better than any other kind of food. And this show is a document of our experiences thriving for years in nutritional ketosis. And also our experiences reversing diabetes and depression and feeling better than we ever have before. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hackity hackity hacking. Hack hack. <laughs> but we don't give medical advice because we're not doctors. Right. We just want to share our experiences and review the research that supports it. Oh, and lamb chops. And ribeye. Again? And pork belly. And avocados. Yeah, well, we share our recipes and any science that we find in the show notes. And we do have an avocado recipe later today. Yeah, so let's start podcast number 162, catching up with Dr. Paul Mason. I gotta tell you, folks, I had I fell in love, not in an inappropriate way, with Dr. Paul Mason. He was over in Denver with our very own Richard Morris, and he and I just, we could have sat in the corner and talked for like 10 hours. He's just yeah. super cool, super fun guy. He's, he's like, he talks a mile a minute, and I threw all of this genetic stuff at him, and we were just sitting there. We, I had the best time with him. I just, I absolutely love him. Awesome. But before we get started on the interview, let's explain in plain English what a ketogenic diet is. Sure. That's any diet that puts you into a state of ketosis where you're burning fat for energy rather than glucose. And the way we did it was to limit our carbohydrates to 20 grams or less every day enjoy a moderate amount of protein, and all our energy comes from fat. Fat? Fat. <laughs> yeah, fat. If you're just starting, listen to our Starting Keto show at start.2keto.com. Well, Miss Carrie, you sound much better than you did last week. What's new? I, I no longer have the plague, so that's nice. <laughs> But I yeah. have had a couple of days out with a migraine this week, so that yeah. wasn't so fun, and I'm still trying to work out what in the world is going on with that. Yeah, right. So it's been a, a migraine slash recipe writing kind of week for me. Oh, and I did spend uh, actually almost a whole day 
in a local artisan cocoa and coffee roasting ah, yes. company uh, near to us, and we're going to have more news about that soon. But I did spend a whole day of my life over there with this amazing gentleman that's doing awesome things in eastern Connecticut. Wow. So that was a really cool day too, and I spent – the day tasting cocoa beans and coffees and talking to this gentleman who is also a chef. Wow. So that was, that was like the highlight of my week. Is he hip to keto and ketones and the power of low insulin and all that? No, he is not, but he was super interested in what we do and he's super interested in working with me to serve the keto community for those of us who choose to live that way. Wow. That sounds great. We'll have to uh, talk some more about that. And you know, right after this recording, I'm heading up that way. So I'm going to stop in and see if I can pick up some Yurga Chef beans because those are my favorite. All right. Yeah. So that was my week. What have you been up to, Mr. Franklin? Well, I put up a new website for my noodles. Noodles! Yeah, and I gave them a name, too. They're Bazoodles. Bazoodles? Bazoodles, yeah. B-Z-O-O-D-L-E-S dot com. If it wasn't a fun name, it couldn't have been a Carl Franklin thing. I, I was just saying to Carl... Before we started recording, that he is so hilarious sometimes when we're getting ready to record that sometimes I think we should just do a whole episode of Carl's amusing outtakes. Right. I'm trying to set the level on the audio compressor and I'm going, whoa, hey, hey, whoa. She thought that was hilarious. It was hilarious. I don't know. I don't think I could get a stand-up whoa, hey job around here anywhere. <laughs> They probably boo me off the stage, but so there's two options for bazoodles. And by the way, if you go to bazoodles.com, you'll see a video of me making them. The video doesn't give you the recipe, but here's the deal. I think the recipe is by itself is worth something. So I have two options for you. You can pre-order a cookbook that in July will come out in PDF format, and it will be 25 bucks when it comes out in July. But if you want to pre-order it, it's only 15 So option one is to pre-order this Bazoodles cookbook and wait until July, and you get the Bazoodles recipe plus all the recipes for pasta and noodles. I was just going to say, this book is not just going to be a recipe for the Bazoodles. There's right. going to be a whole boatload of recipes for how to use your bazoodle. So yeah. it's going to be all the things, not just the zoodle recipe. That's right. And so I also wanted an option for people who wanted to get the recipe now and pay what I call an impatience tax. Because <laughs> I want the recipe now. I obviously have the recipe, right? But I'm... I, right. I, yeah, but I don't want to just give it away. So um, I originally had this option that you can pre-order the cookbook, just like your $15 does, but f but with a little extra money so that you can immediately download the recipe, right? What I should have probably done is just had a recipe download by itself, right? So maybe I don't want the cookbook. I just want the new bazoodle recipe. But now it's, it's really confusing because 
people are like, well, why do I have to pay all this money for a recipe in a cookbook? You don't. And at the end of the day, you don't have to do anything if you don't want. Of course, right. It's just something that Carl has done that's available. And if it's your thing, then do it. And if it's not, then move then it don't. on. But the other thing I need to say is that originally the impatience tax was $99. And I got about 10 people who ordered that. And then the order stopped. And I'm like, you know, that's probably a little cruel, $99 for, you know. And I, I saw a lot of grumbling out there. And yeah, so... I reduced it to $39. So, But you know, Carl, you do have, you and Richard have a lot, a lot of people who are happy to support you because they have had three years of podcasts and yeah. forum and a huge amount of content for free. And they're incredibly grateful for that. So, And we have had a few people who who did that and just because they wanted to support us and you know they they've keto has been good to them uh so that's what i've been up to this week and of course uh i made ravioli of course you did with my bazoodles that was good and that'll be in the cookbook absolutely and i'm testing out other recipes so i've been doing that and some computer programming and all of that well anyway that's been my week so let's give away a two keto dudes coffee mug to a lucky member of the Two Keto Dudes fan club. And of course, uh, Carrie, these new mugs have your mug on them with me, not Richard. So anyone who has an old one has a collector's item. Yay! So who's the winner this week, Carl? This week's winner is Kathy Sosinski. Yay, Kathy! That's awesome. I hope you enjoy drinking your coffee from your new mug. Yes. And if you don't want to wait to win a coffee mug, you can get one online at gear.tukito.com. Right. All right. So uh, what are we going to read now, Carrie? What are we gonna We're going to read a letter. A letter. No. 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 Did you listen to the last couple of weeks shows in the mail segment, what I did with it? Yes, did I you? did. <laughs> well, well, someone I... has to make up for me being stayed, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So this one comes from the forum, of course. And uh, this is um, by Anne Marie. And she says, two months in and I'm not losing weight. Uh, I'm eating according to my macros, logging my food, and I can't seem to lose weight on keto. I can't possibly eat less than I am, and frankly, it seems like I eat much less than every keto menu plan I've ever seen. And I keep catching colds, not keto flu, but really head colds. I never get sick normally, but I've been sick twice already, once in the middle of my 21-day fast and again about five weeks into keto. I didn't mind all the extra kitchen work when I looked forward to losing weight, but now I'm so sick of being in the kitchen because it's murder on my feet and back, and I'm not benefiting from all the work. Ugh, this is so frustrating and depressing. I know that you have, um, you, you want to address Anne-Marie, but uh, I also want to say a few things. I read the entire thread, and people had some good suggestions, but it, it seems like she's not eating a whole lot, and... Some of the foods she's eating could be triggers that she doesn't know about, right? She's eating almonds, 
Um, she's eating uh, swerve. She makes a frappuccino every morning with swerve. That can be a problem for some people. She eats cheese as her go-to snack. And, um, you know, that can hold you back as witnessed by my experience. So also, you know, she's got, she's getting colds. Um, you know, she, she's has aches and pains and stuff. It's something just not right about what she's eating. So and there's probably a, quite a few people that have this experience too. Um, and, and also the fact that some women seem to take longer to start losing weight than others on keto. And uh, three weeks isn't necessarily fat adapted, but she did mention this 21-day fast. So that was uh, before she went keto, and that was a water fast. So I, I think if she's done a 21-day fast, she's fat adapted. So I don't think that's it. But, you know, these are the things that you gotta, that you got to do. Simplify your food. Make sure that you get plenty of electrolytes, salt, magnesium, potassium. And by simplify your food, I mean just, just eat meat, for example, for a couple of days. See how you feel. And then uh, bring back one at a time some of these other foods that you've been eating. And you may find the food that causes the problem. Also, get a glucometer uh, and test yourself after eating some of these foods like cheese and nuts and swerve and stuff like that and see if your your glucose goes up. That's all I got. What do you what do you have to say to Anne Marie? So of course I I tend to err on the woo-woo end of things. <laughs> um but but mostly born out of my own experience and this may or may not be true, but I would love Anne-Marie to consider the fact that her failure to be able to lose weight or to feel better may be nothing to do with keto. Yeah. There may be, and, and I always say to people, if keto doesn't seem to be working for you, if, if, if you're doing all the right things and it's not happening, I would hazard a guess that there's some underlying issue that you need to address. Right. And keto will not work until you've addressed that. And I'm thinking, and I mean, and there's all sorts of things, but the things that come immediately to mind, and I know this is very personal to me, but I just want to use it as an, as an, as an idea to get you thinking. Yeah. Lyme. I had Lyme disease. It didn't matter what I did. I got this pesky spirochete, like causing this massive infection inside mm. me. It didn't matter what I ate. Yeah. That infection was causing me inflammation. The infection was causing me my, the infection was messing with everything. Right. And of course, I didn't know I had it. So I was continually frustrated about what was going on with me. Turns out I had Lyme disease. Mm. Uh, thyroid issues. Right. My, I, I remember the number of times my naturopath told me that if someone has a thyroid issue, there is nothing, it doesn't matter what you do, you're not going to lose weight. Hmm. There are a bunch of things like that Hashimoto's, right. PCOS. There's some underlying issues that it literally doesn't matter what you do in the food department. You're, you will not lose weight right, right. until you fix the underlying 
almost usually hormonal issue. So my best advice would be, would be to find yourself either a functional medicine doctor or a naturopath because they don't focus on symptoms. They focus on finding root cause. Yeah. So my best advice to you would be to go find one of those two and and get the blood work done and start finding out if there's an underlying issue. Once you fix that, mm. then you will almost certainly find that keto starts working in the way it should work and does work for the majority of people. Yeah, that's all good advice. And she did say that she was going to go back to her doctor for some more tests. And I think that was a, a, a smart move. So you got two ways to attack this, Anne-Marie. One is to really, really simplify your diet and, uh, you know, eat to satiety, eat only when you're hungry, stop when you're full and, you know, make it as simple as possible. Meat or eggs, you know, one, one food that everybody knows is going to work and then slowly add back the foods that you know, uh, one at a time and, and find out which one was causing the problem. So you do that experiment on yourself and you go see a doctor, find out if you have any um, pathology, if you have any nutrient deficiencies, that kind of thing. I would also like to toss in the reminder that the definition of insanity is keeping doing the same things and expecting different results. Yeah. And, and I don't say that to criticize you in any way. But I know what it's like to be where you've been. Um, so in the, in the meantime, stop doing what you're doing that's not working. Mm. Um, you know, change things up because if it hasn't worked thus far, it's probably not going to work if you just keep doing the same thing. And I know, in fact, a lot of, especially us girls, we know how frustrating it can be mm. to just keep doing the same things and just it's not working. All right. Well, now let's uh, play the recording that we did in Denver with all three of us. It was you, myself, and Richard Morris. Yay, Richard! Yay! And we interviewed Dr. Paul Mason about a whole lot of stuff. Well, just go ahead and listen. And we're here at Low Carb Denver with Richard and Carrie. The, Hello! The three Hello. dudes are here, and Richard brought his doctor. I did. I brought my doctor along, my GP along. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking to Dr. Paul Mason, yeah, uh, who just gave a great presentation yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul, welcome to Two Care Dudes again. It's awesome. Yeah. But I know that there's a uh, – it's much better than last time. I see we have a new addition. Yes. There's a bit of gender balance. This, yeah. is, this is like the United Nations of accents here today. <laughs> it really is, isn't it? And I don't know anybody speaking the Queen's English. And we're outnumbered. That's true. So the talk you gave yesterday was kind of a little bit based on the talk you gave at Keto Fest Down Under, right? But the talk you gave at the Carnivory Conference, that was really new to me. Yeah. Maybe we should talk about that talk. Yeah, well, that, that was a, uh, basically about plant foods and right. uh, some of the effects that the chemicals in plant foods have on the body and autoimmune disease and a bunch of other stuff and metabolic disease as well. Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, it was all uh, it was all pretty new to me when I was preparing that talk. I was uh, my head was exploding. I mean, mm. the amount of new information I, was, I found it absolutely insane. That was kind of how I felt sitting listening to you give that that talk in, yeah. in the carnivory conference. Was just like whoa. It seemed like there there was a a lot of talk at that conference about gut permeability. Yeah, because this seems to be the the general problem. 
one one big problem. I mean, that's always been on the fringe of medicine. So we sort of paid lip service to it when I was in med school. It was the kind of thing that you say, oh, yes, and there's a theory that some people have about leaky gut. Um, and if you go see a, a homeopath or something, they might talk about it. And it was sort of really considered fringe. But Maybe we should just define what that is and why we should be concerned about it. Yeah, well, well basically, the jo- if you think about the gastrointestinal tract, it's a hollow tube. It goes from your mouth through to the other end, out the anus. And what its job is, is you put stuff inside the gastrointestinal tract and it has to separate the nutrients from the toxins. And the nutrients have to be absorbed, go across the wall, and the toxins have to be expelled. And that's a pretty complex job. And sometimes it doesn't work properly. And what happens is that the wall, rather than uh, blocking the toxins, it can sometimes absorb the toxins. And sometimes rather than absorbing the nutrients, it can uh, block the nutrients. And that, in essence, uh, two of the things that you'll see in a condition called leaky gut or increased intestinal permeability. So if you take this to its extreme condition, it's sepsis, right? Well, I mean, it could lead to sepsis. And and it's I basically mean, bad stuff leaking yeah, into the bloodstream. Yeah, if you have enough bacteria that leave the gut and enter the circulation, that is the definition of sepsis. Yeah, but so we're talking about maybe on a smaller scale. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the trouble is it's not just the bacteria that we worry about. And in actual fact, I mean, what, when you're using the term sepsis, we probably should use more the term bacteremia because sepsis sort of implies a, a, a whole other lot of inflammatory cascade going on. But it's not just the bacteria we worry about. It's these chemicals you get in plant foods called lectins. Lectins. L-E-C-T-I-N-S. Yeah. Lectins. And they're basically a, a natural pesticide of plants. I mean, this, plants can't run away, right? So if they want a little caterpillar comes along, I'm going to eat you. And the plant says, hey, no, you're not. And it's <laughs> I'm going to give you a little cocktail. I'm going to shut down your stomach so you can't digest me and you'll fall off. And I mean, yeah. the funny thing is these, these things have evolved, I mean, probably more for, you know, uh, insect-type predators, but, you know, they're also not very good for us. And these lectins, they, they can, number one, they can cause leaky gut. So they, they can cause uh, effectively porosity or leakiness of the lining of the, the tract. And then once they get absorbed, well, then it's just game on. So they can then trigger autoimmune reactions and they can uh, have even been shown to be associated with Parkinson's disease and weird stuff like that. So um, obviously if, if it worked so predictably for everybody, anyone who ate a salad would have Parkinson's disease. So yeah. to what degree does it happen more with some people, more with us? And how, well, do, we, mean, how do we know this? In genetics is huge. I mean we're probably why don't we start with genetics and talk about why everybody who's ever eaten a salad doesn't have an autoimmune disease right. i think what i'd like to invoke is something we call the swiss cheese model of accident causation so i used to work <laughs> in occupational health and basically imagine that you have layers of defenses against something going wrong but you might have holes in those defenses and think of them like a sheet of paper with a hole in it. Yeah. But usually the holes aren't all aligned in the they defenses. Don't line up, yeah. So you don't get through the defenses. But what happens if somehow all the holes become aligned, then you have a problem. And genetics is one of those defenses. So some people are going to be genetically susceptible and some people are not. You're raising your hand, Carrie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, because you do you know that you're susceptible to these lectins? Well, I've I've had 
leaky gut forever. Yeah. So wow. that's my that's my one of my focuses right now is is healing my gut because it's been leaky for ever yeah and i mean so probably if we tested you so there's this uh, a gene we call the human leukocyte antigen and uh, there's a dr variant of it which is uh, seen in probably about 99 or more percent of people with celiac disease um so i mean the genetic susceptibility i mean you very rarely have such a strong um genetic link so i can actually in my clinic i do a genetic test and if i'm really worried about somebody with celiac disease i can effectively exclude it if they don't have this gene wow so i mean that that's a genetic link i mean so and uh, just to mention with celiac disease gluten is actually a lectin as well so when we're, we're when we're talking about celiac disease that's a lectin disorder as well interesting so that's the first line of defense and then uh, with regards to developing autoimmunity uh, the next factor is that you might you need to have a leaky gut because you could be having these toxic substances in your diet, but if you don't have a leaky gut, they're just going to be coming out the other end and they're not going to be absorbed into your, your system to And, and I imagine that leaky gut is a spectrum, not it's not binary, right? Oh, exactly, exactly. And I mean, so the degree of porosity, if you actually have a look at the research, um, you know, the molecular weight of the particles actually makes a big difference. So certain types of, say, for instance, the leaky gut that you, uh, oh, I'm opening a can of worms here, that is uh, <laughs> potentially induced <Literally. laughs> with uh, medium chain triglycerides like C10, mm. um, that's actually a very defined one and that, that's very limited. So um, larger molecules actually don't pass. Um, so you just said something that uh, blows my mind. You, you're basically saying MCT, medium chain triglycerides, to some extent. Cause ten, 10 carbon. Yeah, so C10. C10. So the, the research, and I, only, I don't know if it could be C8, Oh, C12. I suspect not C12 because that, that behaves a bit differently. I, I don't know what any of that means, but I want to know if I can eat butter. <laughs> well, here's the thing. The data we've got at the moment has been done on animals. Um, but often the, uh, the intestinal studies, uh, the lining of the intestines usually uh, responds the same, but there are some key differences um, between humans and animals. And the way they've actually done the study, it was really elegant. They actually put a dye inside the intestine and then they exposed the intestine to MCT or, or, or C10. And then they were actually able to see the dye pass between the cells, the cells that were normally meant to be held tightly together with tight junctions. They could see the dye passing between the cells. Now, the question is, does this actually apply to humans? Now, the drug companies certainly think so because they're trying to use uh, C10 as a uh, uh, an adjunct for drug delivery. To get drugs in. Yeah. To get now, drugs in. Okay, so now here's the other thing that's scary, and this is this was brought up at the at the carnivory conference, is that you're saying that drug manufacturers attach a nanoparticle that can permeate the gut wall, that can cause leaky gut so that their drugs can get into the blood system faster. Yeah, yeah. So, well, this is similar to the MCT, but they're using, they use nanoparticles like titanium dioxide because that's well known. And I mean, I don't know that there's any products on the market with it at the moment, but it is certainly an active area of research because these nanoparticles are so damned effective at creating a leaky gut. But the scary thing is, I mean, from my background, before I was exposed to this, we only ever really heard about nanoparticles in sunscreen and we we're all, all say, oh, don't put it on the sunscreen. But the thing is, when we, you put it on and they've done studies where they've whacked it on, a big blob on the skin and they've 
they've covered it over the top with an impermeable membrane, which is called a, a occlusion, basically, and that is the most effective way to get things to absorb through the skin. They've left it on for 48 hours. Like a transdermal then, uh, exactly, delivery. Exactly. And then they biopsied the skin and they found that it hasn't really gone down to the deep dermal layer where the lymphatic vessels and all of this other stuff is. So the stuff in sunscreen is probably not that bad for us, but we eat the stuff. Mm. It's actually used as a whitening agent in foods and we've got a uh, a food a food scientist, scientist here <laughs> extraordinaire who will you know knows a lot about these additives and I mean in candies and chewing gum and I mean these um you know chewing gum that will be marketed as gluten free sugar free great for your health will often have titanium dioxide in it hmm. and uh you know so I I would uh I would proffer that one should not have that. I think people don't people don't realise that the gut is actually the outside world. We think of the gut as right. being part of, of something in our body, yeah. but it's part of the outside world. So That's when we're talking about you know uh, UV cream penetrating through our dermal layer through our skin, mm. it, it's exactly the same thing. We, we, the, the the gut is the is the is outside actually. <laughs> the gut is yeah. outside. So yeah. what's in the yeah exactly? That's a perfect point. Wow. Really important. So what's inside the uh, we call the interior of a hollow tube the lumen in medicine. So what's in the gastrointestinal lumen is effectively outside the body. Yes. Right? Yeah. That, that <laughs> so we should blown, probably take better care of it. But but it also <laughs> brings me back to this point, which is you know to to what extent do some of these things work on us, and what things should we be concerned about, and what things should we not? Be well, why don't we come about? back to then? So we're up to the point where if you have a leaky gut, these lectin type these. Uh, carbohydrate binding proteins, particularly mm. from plants, they're not only from plants, but the most deleterious ones are, they can actually go inside the body and they can get exposed to the immune system. And there's a process then called molecular mimicry. So the way the immune system works is it sees a, uh, a foreign invader, a yeah. pathogen, and it looks at a particular molecular signature mm. on the outside of it and it says, Oh, that's that's foreign, or oh, that's that's me. That's my cell. That's a liver cell. We better leave that one alone. Mm. But the trouble is, some of these lectins they create an immune response where the body can't differentiate between a lectin and a healthy cell. So if the body mounts an immune response against the lectin, it ends up mounting an immune response against the healthy cells also. So, like a pancreatic beta cell, like a pancreatic beta cell. So here's the thing: or a lot of people in the case of don't realize the strong link between celiac disease and type 1 diabetes. Mm. And here's a really cool thing. So often they're, they're very commonly linked, but usually you'll get one before you get the other one. So if you get uh, celiac disease before you get developed type 1 diabetes, mm -hmm. your risk of type 1 diabetes goes way down. Really? Now let me tell you why. Mm. What's the first thing you do when you go when you're diagnosed with celiac disease? You stop eating carbs. You go on a gluten-free <laughs> diet. Right. So, And that the act of going on a gluten-free diet. Relieves the pressure on the pancreatic bit. Well, it, it just it, it removes the this autoimmune process. Oh. It means that the antibodies that you'd normally develop against uh, in the in type 1 diabetes, so there's two antibodies. They've got fancy names, so mm. we call them uh, glutamic acid decarboxylase and then anti-islet cells. But those antibodies, you, you form the antibodies for celiac disease mm. but, and then you go on a gluten-free diet and it reduces the likelihood that you form the antibodies <laughs> for type 1 diabetes. Huh. So, And I find that just absolutely fascinating. But if you happen to be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes first, 
then it doesn't really affect your chances of developing celiac disease simply because people don't change their diet mm. to exclude gluten after a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. But the cool thing is when we've actually done studies on uh, you know, what happens if you exclude gluten in a type 1 diabetic, mm. um, we don't have the big numbers yet, but there's certainly uh, some some positive data and some uh, case studies that will show that at the very least you get a very prolonged honeymoon period. We we will actually have big data soon enough because, you know, after the Leonard's et al. paper of 2018 where they showed that a, a low-carb ketogenic diet was able to give type 1 diabetics exceptional glucose control. Mm. Yeah. With more di- type 1 diabetic children coming into using ketogenic diets, we actually will probably get data on celiac disease. I think so. Actually, I'll tell you one other thing that really surprises me too, and this paper was just published late last year, is that they looked at maternal intake of gluten Mm. and they looked at what that did to the chances of their offspring developing type 1 diabetes. Mm. Wow. Wow, indeed. strong correlation. Mm. If you were amongst the, the group of mothers who had the highest gluten intake, then the relative risk of your child developing type 1 diabetes was doubled. Wow. (sighs) Wow. And that was a big study. I mean, I love these Scandinavian studies because they basically say, you know, there's no opt-in. They seem to just grab the whole bloody population. That's (laughs) that's the advantage of socialised medicine. I mean, that really is. We, we, we do the same thing. I mean, the, the, the Brits do in in the UK health system and we do with with our health system as well. so. So I'm curious. When someone goes on a ketogenic low-carb diet, how much of their improvement in health do you think could be actually attributed to absence of gluten? A hell of a lot. And I mean, so let's And that's just, for everybody. We're not just talking about yeah. celiacs or like that's a huge thing. So I just thing. want to talk about – I'm going to talk about reflux briefly and then we're going to talk about obesity because they're two separate things. But let's – we know that when you go on a low-carb diet – we see, I see every day in the clinic, and you guys would have had people on your podcast telling you, mm-hmm. people's reflux just disappears. Yeah. Mine does. Just Good. disappears. Gone. The only time I ever get any kind of indigestion is if I eat carbs. Yeah. And, and next day it's gone. And Eric Westman did a beautiful study some years ago where they actually put these probes down their throat into the esophagus and they actually left them there for 24 hours and they measured the amount of acid that was being secreted on a standard diet and then – they said, go very low carb for six days and then we'll test again. And they had a huge reduction in the average level of acidity in the gut. And here's the mechanism. So these lectins, they actually um, they bind to a cell inside the gut called mast cells that release something called histamine. And this histamine triggers acid release. So in basically you end up with a sequence where consuming lectins causes your stomach to secrete more acid. So when you lose weight, everybody says it's the carbs, but you know what it is? It's probably the lectins contained within the carbs, the cereals, the breads, these kind of things. They're carby, but they're also very lectiny, if that's the word. <laughs> so is there an implication uh, for cardiovascular disease then if mast cells can be uh, affected by, by lectins? Well, mast cells are traditionally part of the uh, allergic response. But, I mean, when uh, – so, I mean – Yes, they absolutely do affect cardiovascular health. And the main mechanism is there is that these lectins, some of them can actually bind to the inside lining of the blood vessels, damaging it. Oh, no. So we've got, a, <laughs> we've got this protective layer. It's like, mm. a, it's like fur, like a, a shag rug that just lines inside of blood vessels. It's called the glycocalyx. Mm-hmm. And they're actually uh, called glycoproteins. They're little proteins with a little sugar on the tip 
which is a carbohydrate. And as I said, these lectins are carbohydrate binding proteins. So what do you think they're going to do? They're going to bind to the tip of that glycoprotein, mm-hmm. which forms the glycocalyx. They're going to damage it, and the cells underneath that, the, the cells lining the blood vessels, they can actually then separate um, similarly to what happens in leaky gut. And that can actually kickstart the process of atherosclerosis where you can actually, I mean, combined with a bunch of other stuff like mm-hmm. oxidized LDL, et cetera, et cetera, um, but that will, that will be part of the process of developing fatty deposits inside the blood vessels. So if you want to heal your uh, va- cardiovascular system, go on a low-carb ketogenic diet. Go carnivore. Well, and, and possibly <laughs> make sure. So we don't know exactly the, the full variety. So these lectins are fairly specific for the carbohydrates or the sugars they'll bind to. So mm. not every lectin you consume will line or attach to the inside right. of a blood vessel, but some of them will. And I think that there's going to be a lot of research in the future. It's a really active um, field of research at the Mm. moment. It's one of those things that's going to explode. If you do a literature search now, you might get 10 or 20 or 50 articles on it. In Mm. three years' time, there's going to be a 1,000. It's going to be like the microbiome in terms Mm. of research interest. So what are the chances of a carnivore getting leaky gut? Well, there's a diet called the autoimmune protocol. And, I mean, effectively, I mean, that, that's a carnivore diet that seeks to eliminate um, sources of lectins. And mm. I guess why I distinguish between that and the carnivore diet is that theoretically there are still um, things that are similar to lectins even in some animal-based foods. Mm. Uh, but there's increasing evidence now that the, it really improves it a lot. And I think the prototypical condition that would um, would call leaky gut would be inflammatory bowel disease, um, so your Crohn's disease or mm-hmm. your ulcerative colitis. And they actually they did one really nice study using this autoimmune protocol where they, they basically cut out all the sources of lectins they could, but they also um, excluded dairy and eggs. Mm. And what they actually found, the, uh, the people and the subjects in the study, they had an average duration of about 19 years of this inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and a lot of them were refractory to steroids, which means standard management really wasn't working. They were on expensive um, what we call monoclonal antibody or biological treatments. And I think it was about three-quarters of them had pretty much a complete clinical remission within six weeks. Wow. So I think in answer to your question, you know, would a how effective would that kind of diet be? The research would say pretty bloody good. Pretty bloody good. (laughs) But then um, we come to lectins and, I mean, um, metabolic health. And this is something that uh, absolutely blew my mind. And it comes to insulin and leptin, L-E-P-T-I-N. Right. And we all know that, you know, if you stimulate insulin, that stimulates fat storage, right? Mm. Not so good. Now, there's lectins can actually stimulate the insulin receptor and they can actually stimulate it much more profoundly than insulin can. The cellular insulin receptor? The cellular insulin receptor. Mm -hmm. They can stimulate it longer and harder, basically, Mm. than does insulin. And this is absolutely insane. And then you combine that with leptin and leptin resistance is associated with obesity. Well, leptin is the the hunger hormone that tells you you're satisfied, right? Yeah, it tells you you're satisfied. And insulin blocks that. So you want leptin to be active. Well, these lectins, they've actually shown several types of them, are able to basically interfere with leptin's 
binding to the mm. leptin receptor, effectively causing leptin resistance. And this is why after you eat Chinese food, 15 minutes later, you're hungry again. Is that right? Is this what well, you're saying? <laughs> what I'm saying is... I mean, it makes sense to me. So have you guys had any carnivores on the, on the program? Yes, we have. And have we, you we're ta- talking to one right now. So, right? have you talked about um, to them about you know their weight loss? You know, you speak to people who exclude plant foods which contain these lectins, and yeah. I see a lot of people who lose upwards of ten kilograms right. transitioning from a ketogenic diet, which is just insane because they're right. both low carbohydrate diets, and this is the mechanism: these lectins that interfere with insulin and leptin. Um, will very elegantly explain why you'll actually get more weight loss once you cut them out of the diet. Mm. Well, um, Jimmy Moore, for example, is down at about 25, 30 pounds. Is he doing carnivore After now? doing carnivore. I yeah. had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> wow. There you go. So how much down? 30 pounds, I think. Mm. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it really, I mean, because some of the fat tissue, when you've had it for a long time, it really stops being as hormonally responsive. Mm-hmm. So I think you really need to cling to everything you can to try and, you know, kick the process on. Right. One of the nice things uh, is that uh, fat cells only live for 10 years. And this was discovered by a Swedish researcher using um, radioactive decay from uh, from. Uh, atmospheric uh, nuclear oh, tests. I did not know that. And so I have been ketogenic now for – in April I'll have been ketogenic for five years. Mm. So half of my half of my fat cells will have had no memory of ever being diabetic. Well, there you go. Well, just to put a bit of a, uh, a stick in the spokes there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when you do that. Go ahead. <laughs> but I mean, no, he no, knows no. I'm a cyclist. So. <laughs> <laughs> Over the handlebars. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not necessarily for you, but um, occasionally we see. I had a patient a while ago, and he had something called cryoablation, where they basically mm-hmm. freeze the fat tissue. So imagine he had this sort of quite pendulous abdomen, and he had this localized area. He just really wanted it in the six pack area. So he yeah. sort of shrunk the fat down a little bit there, and it, it didn't go all the way. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like cutting it out, but it shrunk it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And then he came to see me and we said, right, here's the healthy diet. And he lost a bunch of weight. Mm. But the trouble is he lost weight only around the area (laughs) that he had had cryoablation. So he actually ended up with this little mass sitting where he had actually had the original loss. And because (laughs) the peripheral areas, he had actually lost more weight from that area, it ended up with this protruding area there. And it, very, it was no longer able to participate it, in, well, in delivery of energy. Here's what we think happened. We think mm. it, the fat cells necrosed mm. and it, the, the literature is a bit tenuous and this what is that very mean? much died. a diet. Oh, okay. So, so mm. the fat cells died and they basically got engulfed by these macrophage cells, mm. what we call uh, phagocytes, and that is basically dead fat tissue. I mean, there must be a little bit of, uh, you know, viability there, otherwise you'd get gangrene, but mm. it was basically non-responsive. It was totally destroyed and wow. it didn't respond to hormones. So the rest of his normal fat tissue would respond to the hormones and we, mm. you know, we reduce the hormones in the right ways and put him on a ketogenic diet. He loses weight, absolutely worked brilliantly, but not the fat that was damaged, mm. not the mm. fat that was damaged by cryoablation. Wow. So just a word of warning for your listeners, don't get it done. No. Mm. Just lose weight healthily. Yeah. Or I, mean, I, I guess he would have to then have liposuction. To, well, to ended up, I ended that. up sending him to a plastic surgeon. Which, Put a cannula know, in, yeah. And unfortunately, uh, I mean, it's a bit because it, the texture's changed, it, mm. it's not 
just a matter of, I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen liposuction. It's brutal. Yeah, it's horrible. It's yeah, I would never do it. Yeah. So, I mean, in my field, there's some uh, charlatans out there who actually do, um, and I talk about um, in sports medicine, mm. who will actually do liposuction to extract stem cells. Mm. Um, but you wow. end up with a, and by the way, people, it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's my doctor telling you that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was never on my to-do list. <laughs> so now I'm curious, is there anything else, you know, that you you hear about people who just no matter what, they can't lose weight. They can't get rid of the fat. Is there anything else that that would kill off the fat cells to make them so unresponsive that it's not going to respond to the ketogenic diet? I don't think it's been studied enough, to be honest. I, I suspect that people who have been overweight for a really, really long period of time, mm. um, I, I, I think the fat just doesn't respond to their hormonal changes in the same way as it does for somebody who might be just as overweight but who's just been overweight for a shorter period. Mm. There, And we always talk about, you know, hormonal set points and stuff like that, and I, I don't think that adequately explains it. I, I suspect it's due to enzymatic changes within the fat tissue. So I don't know if you've heard of a condition called steatopigia. No. No. So it's, it's basically, um, if we're being polite about it, we call femoro gluteal adiposity, basically fat around the bum and the thighs. I like big butts and I cannot lie. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, some females will come in and I've actually seen them in clinic with a six-pack and mm. they come in and say, I just want to lose this weight on my bum. And so a six-pack on their belly and, 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 and a lot of weight. And a booty. Yeah, and a what booty. I know, what I know about the junk in the trunk is that it's healthier Fat. Oh well, it is healthier. And then, then so it's not true fat. visceral fat, and the reason it happens is because you have different differential expression of these enzymes. So you know you've got your lipoprotein lipo lipase mm -hmm. and hormone sensitive lipase and these kind of things. Yeah. Well, they have differential expression in the fat tissue dependent on the region of their body. Mm. Right. And so, in females with um, with this particular pattern of fat deposition, which, is, as you correctly say, is a healthy fat deposition pattern, unfortunately that's driven by these enzymes, this genetic expression of these enzymes, and there's nothing that you can do about it. You cannot change that genetic expression just by manipulating your circulatory hormone levels. Mm. That It is what it is. And, I mean, I think that huh. points to uh, – I think that's another area of research. We need to understand how these enzymes change in fat tissue over time. And I would put money on it and if you're overweight for long enough that there's probably, you know, semi-permanent or at least long-lasting changes in that. Wow. And half hour flew by. <laughs> Was that just half hour? We didn't even talk about the Parkinson's disease, which huh? is a kicker. We'll have to have you back. Yeah, I guess we will. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's always great to chat to you guys. Thanks, Doc. Thank you. Yeah, he really is awesome. You know, one thing I really like about him is he can deliver really bad news with a smile on his face. He seems to have a knack for that. <laughs> he is he is such a jolly chap. I just loved him. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Carrie, uh, I think it's time for you to lay on us now one of your recipes. Could you save your for a little? I do, in fact, have a recipe for y'all, and <laughs> it's it, this. This came about because 
I sometimes we have people in the the kitchen Facebook group that Carl and Kim Houghton and Chef Taffy and and I kind of hang out in. Yeah. Uh, not a lot, but every once in a while we'll get people who say, I don't like avocado. Right. I, I want to love avocado. I understand that avocado is magical, but I don't like it. Like, how is there something I can do to avocado to make it taste good? Right. Um, and so there, there, some people it's not flavor, it's the texture. And some mm-hmm. people it's the flavor. And there's also like a group of people who love avocado, but they just get bored of just slicing and putting avocado on top of everything or just eating avocado. They're just like, I want to do something different with my avocado. They're kind mm. of people like you and me, Carl, who couldn't eat the same thing every day and right. and still be happy and thrive. Right. So the people who want something different. So I came up with this. And again, it's very simple, very fast. But it completely transforms avocado into something quite different. Okay. So for people who don't care for it but want to eat it, or for people who love it but are just bored with eating it the same old way, this is for you. Cool. And so here we go. You're going to need an English cucumber, and those are the long, skinnier ones that you can get for like a whole bunch of them in Costco for about 50 cents. Mm. Um, And I use English cucumbers because if you're not a devotee of English cucumbers as opposed to regular American cucumbers, let me tell you that the English cucumbers do not have a bitter skin. And they also have, they're called seedless. They're not actually seedless, but they're typically called seedless because the seeds are soft. You don't even notice they're there. Yes. Whereas with American cucumbers, you the, the seeds are there and they're hard. And also the skin is tough and bitter. Yep. So people generally have to peel American cucumbers and sometimes de-seed them. You don't have to do any of that nope. with English cucumbers. You can just um, eat it. Slice them and eat them, skin them all, seeds and all. Chop them and eat them. They're not bitter. I don't, I actually, I'm a huge fan of cucumbers. It's a good way to get water inside you if you're not sure. a water lover. And, and I grew up, my father had a greenhouse in England. And uh-huh. so I grew up eating cucumbers like apples. I would just, we had so many of them that I would just eat a cucumber where other kids would eat apples. So I'm a big, big fan. Wow. Lucky you. But if you haven't, if you haven't moved over to the light of the cucumber world, it's the English cucumber. I highly recommend you try them and don't peel them. So great. You're going to get an English cucumber and you're going to need some lime juice. You're going to need a scallion, which in England is called a spring onion and other Mm -hmm. places in America is called a green onion. Mm -hmm. You're going to need some cottage cheese. You're going to need, of course, an avocado because this is an avocado recipe. Mm. And you're also going to need some ground cumin. Great. So what you're going to do, you're going to cut the cucumber in half widthways across the middle. And then you're going to cut it in half against lengthways. So you've got like four boats. Okay. And you're going to cut each quarter in half again and then cut each length into quarter-inch slices. So you've got these cute little quarter slices. If you're new to cooking or that just sounds all too complicated, you can just (laughs) chop your cucumber into bite-sized pieces, skin on, and 
uh, any way you can. Right. You know, if you don't care about it looking pretty, then just have at it. Sure. It'll taste the same. It might not look the same, but it'll taste the same going down. Once you've removed the stone from the avocado and removed the skin from half of it, slice the avocado into small pieces and toss it in a bowl with the lime juice until the avocado is completely coated in juice. That is what will stop the avocado from going brown. Do you cut the avocado in about the same size pieces as the cucumber? Yes, that will well that will make it easier to mix everything and it'll also make it look prettier. And easier to eat too, right? I mean you you don't want huge chunks of one thing and not another, right? Right, and then you'll get like it'll be evenly distributed with each other. Right. Cucumber, so you won't get, you know, 10 spoons of all cucumber and then one spoon yeah. of avocado. Yep. So once you've got the avocado pieces coated in lime juice, you're going to gently mix in all of your chopped cucumber. Mm-hmm. You're going to then get your scallion or your green onion and you're going to cut it into small pieces. I find using scissors is the far the quickest and easiest way to do scallions is just use scissors, but you can use a knife if you want. Snip, snip, snip. Add those to the bowl and mix gently. And then you're going to stir in the cottage cheese and the ground cumin, and you're going to stir gently until all the ingredients have been completely combined. Nice. So it's super simple. Um, when it comes to cottage cheese, you will probably want to pick the all-fat cottage cheese. Right. Now, typically, you'll find that if it's not called low-fat or not called fat-free, then by default, that is the full-fat. Right. But in some places, you'll find that the full-fat cottage cheese is called small-curd cottage cheese. So, for example, oh, Trader Joe's. Okay. Trader Joe's small curd cottage cheese is there all the fat cottage cheese. And actually, I find the small curd a lot nicer to eat hmm. because the, it's smaller. So that's what I used was Trader Joe's small curd cottage cheese in this. But you do want to avoid the low fat or the no fat and just go for the cottage cheese. Put the cumin in there? Yes, I put the cumin in at the end there with the cottage cheese. Yeah, okay. So, and as always, the you don't have to write that down or remember it. If you go to carriebrown.com, you will find the recipe there. We will also give you the direct link in the show notes. Yeah. So Just search for avocado salsa salad on yep. carriebrown.com. Yep. So if you want to do something new and exciting with avocado or you want to like avocado, this is your opportunity. That sounds good. You know, it almost sounds like a cottage cheese poke. Right. Add a little sesame oil and you've got that poke flavor. And and you can put it in a lettuce wrap if you want to. If Mm. you get some of the fabulous Julie McClure Fox Hill Kitchens buns, you could use it to make an avocado salsa salad sandwich. Yeah. And it kind of looks like a sandwich filling. So you could also use it as a topping. You could put it on a burger. That would be super yummy. You can use it in all sorts of different ways like you would similar salads um or you can just eat it as is sounds good well 
That's another Two Keto Dudes show, Carrie. You know, if you guys have anything you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something that you don't agree with, or some more research that you found to support or refute anything we've said, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com. And you can follow us on Twitter, Twitch, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Two Keto Dudes. Make sure to use the hashtag Two Keto Dudes. And of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forum, it's forum.twoketo.com. And you can have a look around the ketogenic forum without needing to create an account by starting with success.2keto.com. Also, check out our Facebook group, The Keto Kitchen, if Facebook is your thing. And mm-hmm. if you feel like supporting our forums and all the podcasts we produce, please consider making a monthly pledge on our Patreon page at patreon.2keto.com. If you pledge $20 a month for more, for which we'll be incredibly grateful, mm-hmm. you will have access to an exclusive Facebook group that we've called Two Keto Dudes Gold. And you can also see our podcast and other videos on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com. And if you haven't already, please go and leave a review on Apple Podcasts because that's how new people get to know about what we do. Two Keto Dudes is brought to you by Two Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And everybody, listen up. Keep calm and keto on. Keep calm and keto on, Carl. Yes. We'll see you next time on Two Two Keto Keto Dudes. Dudes.